I think it boils down to maybe three things. I'd say take risks, um, push yourself outside of your comfort zone and work hard. And if you do those things, you can't look back and say, hey, I didn't give it my best. It's not a straight line. I'm Jordan Harding and welcome to the podcast. We're about to learn how people like you and I overcome career setbacks, pivot, reinvent themselves and find work that aligns with their top strengths. Let's dig in together as we learn how these incredible people become the best version of themselves. I'm very excited to have the pleasure to introduce you to my very first podcast guest. It's my amazing sister, Allison Lukacs. Allison is a graduate of the University of Western Ontario. She did her teacher's college at Oise University of Toronto and has a master's in education from Endicott College in Massachusetts. Allison's an amazing person, somebody who takes chances and has pushed herself outside of her comfort zone to grow not only her career, but her life and those around her. I am so looking forward to this talk, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome uh, to the podcast, Allison. How are you? Thank you. Great, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. You know, for the first question, I'd like to understand, what type of student were you in high school? I was always a pretty good student, I think. Um, I was somebody that always sought approval from my teachers and and wanted to be well-liked, not only by my teachers, but by my peers. Um, I always liked school, so I don't think it's any surprise that I've ended up um, being a teacher now that I'm older. Do you think uh, you looked up to your teachers and were admiring their profession? I think I'd thought about being a teacher for a long time, and certainly some of my teachers stood out in my mind as role models. I think also the fact that our mom was a teacher uh, really got me thinking about being an educator at a young age. So yeah, I've always admired teachers, I think, and I've always looked up to them as role models for sure. When you were in elementary school and even in high school, do you remember looking back and thinking about what you wanted to become? Can you talk a little bit about what your career aspirations at that time may have been? Yeah, I think I was all over the place. I do think um, being a teacher was something that was on my mind from early on and, and sort of always on my mind. But of course, I went through a whole variety of different other careers. I think when I started grade nine, I remember telling the guidance counselor that I wanted to be an architect. Um, I know later on in my high school career, I seriously considered going into law. Uh, even once I got into university, I, I really wasn't sure. I ended up in, in social justice and peace studies. So for a while, I think I thought that I may be working for a nonprofit. But uh, ultimately, when it came around to fourth year, the, the one career that I could sort of see myself doing was being an educator. So I applied to Teachers College and, and uh, got in, and the rest is history. You went to OISE, U of T, mm-hmm. for Teachers College. You know, I believe after that, you decided to take more of an untraditional route by teaching at two different boards, um, mm-hmm. substituting at two different boards. So what made that the right decision for you? And how did that fit into your life as well as your potential mm-hmm. career that you wanted to build? Well, to be honest, that was never something that I intended to do. But 
um, I was being told at the time, we were all being told at the time that we were in teacher's college, that there were no jobs, there were no jobs, there were no jobs. <laughs> so that was a little demoralizing. So when it came time to actually applying to different school boards, I applied to a bunch. Of course, I applied in Toronto because I had been going to um, to school there to, to become a teacher. And I had done my practicums in the Toronto Catholic District School Board. So I had, you know, I, I felt a foot in the door in, in some schools there. Um, but of course, I also applied in Niagara because that's where I grew up and I did my third practicum or my internship piece in Niagara. So I applied to both boards. Um, I was really, really fortunate to to get interviews and to ultimately get hired by both boards. So um, I thought, why why not keep both of them? And I had been told that I could. Um, I, I had heard of a couple other people who had done that and Traditionally, people wouldn't maybe be on two boards that are so geographically far apart, but I felt that I could make it work. And I think ultimately it was a good decision because not only did it help me to fill my my weeks up in terms of getting supply work, but uh, it also, you know, introduced me to a variety of different schools and, and different communities. Of course, Toronto is very di- diverse, so that was an interesting experience. I love that you did something different when it came to being a supply teacher. What do you think that ultimately meant and did for your career? Uh, it was hard work, but I think also that actually helped me to to get in the door at Ridley. I remember the uh, assistant head of school said to me, you know, I noticed that you, you've been working on two school boards. I like somebody that grinds. So I think ultimately that that helped me uh, secure my my permanent position at Ridley College. So I believe at this point, you were supply teaching in two boards, both in the Catholic system. When did you start thinking a private school and the private system may be something to explore further? Yeah, again, that wasn't something super intentional. I was supply teaching for the two school boards. There is um, a private school in St. Catharines where I was living, not too far away from where I was living. And so I, I thought, why not check out the private system. I don't know anything about it. Of course, I didn't go through the private system myself. I didn't know anyone who worked in the private system, but I just saw it as another opportunity to see see what else was out there. Um, I got in, in contact with somebody that I knew who worked at Ridley, and that person was able to help me start, uh, start tutoring at Ridley just part-time. So that was something else I took on while I was supply teaching. I would tutor in the evenings. And after I did that for a little while, of course, I made some some more contacts at the school, um, got to know how the school functioned and, and what their education was like and so on and so forth, and uh, really was became quite interested in it. And then I was just really fortunate at, uh, at the end of that first school year. So I was supply teaching and tutoring for a full school year. At the end of that school year, a grade six position came open at, at Ridley and I applied and was really lucky to be to be hired. And I've been there ever since. That's amazing how you got into Ridley and broke into to the school and launched your career. So you're at Ridley and I believe now you started to pursue your master's of education at Endicott College and specifically international education. What made you take that route in terms of your master's degree? Well, firstly, I think I was always interested in continuing my education because I love learning. I'm a lifelong learner. Obviously, I'm, I'm a teacher. I'm still in the school system. So I was definitely interested in taking the next step in, in terms of my professional development and doing a master's degree. And then ultimately, I chose Endicott College, which is out of Massachusetts in the States, because 
they offered a master's degree in international education. So I mentioned earlier that, you know, one of the things that immediately drew me to Ridley College was the international nature of the student body. And so that's when I really started learning about international education. When I was at Ridley, I met some teachers who had taught all over the world at international schools. And it sounds kind of silly, but I didn't even know what international schools were until I got to Ridley. Um, And I, you know, again, I met some people who had taught at international schools. So that really piqued my interest in in international education. What is international education? Um, it just seemed like something that I was really keen to to learn more about. So ultimately, I went with Endicott College because they offered this master's in international education. Um, I also was attracted to Endicott because of the the delivery format. I could do online courses during the school year while I was working. Um, And then during the summers, they offered an opportunity for the students to go to international schools in different parts of the world and have face-to-face classes. So that was really exciting. I had always wanted to go up go abroad I think actually because you had gone abroad when you were in university and I always looked up to you ever since you had gone I I wanted to go away Uh, I never made that happen in university and so it's not like that desire to to go away or that that travel bug went away after I graduated university I thought I still really want to make this happen yeah that's great and I mean exchange as you know was the best part or one of the best times of my life uh, so when you were at Endicott College and you finished that master's and you're at Ridley, when did you start thinking about, hey, maybe I should go away for a full year and teach at an international school abroad? When I took the master's through Endicott and I met all these other teachers that were working abroad, that idea sort of resurfaced and I began thinking, hey, maybe I can maybe I can make this happen. Um, I was definitely an anomaly in that program. I was, I think, the only person in my master's program and in my particular cohort that was actually teaching in uh, her hometown. All the other students were primarily from the United States and a few were from Canada as well, but they were teaching in all these really incredible exotic locations all over the globe. And so I was I was kind of the oddball out. Not only did that experience sort of open my eyes to Um, the international teaching world, but it made me realize that, hey, this is really something I should pursue because uh, my my classmates spoke so highly of it. I also knew that my headmaster at Ridley was a really big and and still is a really big proponent of international education because he and and his family taught abroad uh, for several years. So I knew that this was something I could approach him about. And ultimately, he was very supportive of interest in going abroad. So you've done the master's program with uh, students and colleagues that have taught all over the world. You have a headmaster that taught abroad and is supportive or you think would champion that idea. What are the steps you take? Um, Where do you go next in terms of making this a reality? Step one was speaking to my headmaster and just, you know, to ensure that he would be supportive of it. Then I started looking at which schools uh, I'd be interested in applying to. I spoke to a couple of my colleagues who had taught abroad before to learn more about the process of of applying abroad um, and quickly learned that there are basically two really big international school recruiting firms, um, and I should at least choose one of them to register with. Uh, So I did that. I uh, registered with Search Associates, which is a really big 
uh, like I said, international school recruiting firm. Um, once I registered with them, things started happening quickly because once you register with a, a firm like that, you have access to all kinds of job postings uh, from around the world and you can start setting your resume. So once I registered with them, I started doing my research, started trying to connect with, again, more people who had done this before uh, to identify which schools I should really pursue. And it was tough. Uh, I won't lie. It was tough because not only did I have to get my profile filled out pretty quickly on search associates, I was actually a little late in the process. Um, Just by the time I decided to do all this, I was a little bit late in the process. And it's quite an extensive application. Like you don't, you don't just need to upload your resume and cover letter and and you're off to the races. You need to have references and you need to have from administrators at your school and you need to write like a little biography and statement of your teaching philosophy. And so it was a pretty extensive application. Um, So that was a lot of work. And then applying to jobs was a lot of work. And I think in there, you also went to, was it Boston where they had a recruiting conference? There's a several big job fairs that are held around the world. The one that was closest to me was was Boston. Actually, they, they did have one in Toronto, but it was a smaller one. And it was, like I said, much earlier on in the recruiting season, so I wouldn't have been ready to go to it. So the next best option for me was Boston. And Boston is a good one to go to because it's, it's a large recruiting fair. Uh, and again, a, a number of people that I knew who worked in the international field had, had gotten their jobs at these fairs. So... Um, I also, while I was applying to jobs and trying to secure interviews for the job fair, I also began preparing myself for that job fair because I had heard that they could be, um, that they can be quite intense and, uh, and a little bit overwhelming. So <laughs> yeah, at the end of, at the end of January, I went to, I went to Cambridge in Boston and spent a weekend interviewing, interviewed with 11 different schools, um, And I actually left Boston without an offer. So I I left that weekend without a job. But um, later that week, I had a second interview over Skype with the head of the the middle school at the American School in Switzerland. And uh, and a few days later, I was really, really grateful to receive a call from the headmaster at TASIS. And I was offered I was offered a position in the middle school. That's such a, an amazing story. And I remember uh, when you told our parents that uh, you got this position at Tassis in Switzerland. And it, uh, it changed your life forever. You know, going through that process and having 11 interviews, if you think about the name of this podcast and it's not a straight line and the theme of some of the challenges you had to overcome – A lot of people that know you think you're a great public speaker, which you are, and they think that you're very confident. Um, But I know that going through those 11 interviews would have been difficult, and interviewing is something that you work very hard at because it's something that does make you and makes a lot of people very nervous. So if you had any advice for teachers looking to go abroad or for other professionals that are looking to do something that's a little uncomfortable to take a risk, what would be the advice you'd pass on to them? Yeah, absolutely. I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. I hate interviewing so much. (laughs) I get so flustered. And even though I, you know, I know the answers to the questions I'm being asked, I think I get so nervous that uh, I always worry I'm going to, you know, choke and and not be able to respond or that I'm not going to you know, be able to provide an answer that really reflects um, 
my knowledge or my experience. So I was absolutely terrified. I was terrified going into the job fair. Again, people had said to me, look, you're going to have several interviews over the course of a few days. And that, that was absolutely overwhelming for me. Um, I really couldn't picture myself doing that. I will say once I got into it and once I got through the first few interviews, it got easier because you realize, hey, I can do this. You know, I, I prepared a lot. I practiced for the interviews a lot. Um, and the first couple were, were so, so nerve wracking, but I got through them and I realized like, hey, I, I can do this. And of course, the more you have, the more you realize that and the more practice, by the way, you're, you're getting. Um, but yeah, I mean, preparing for that was, was really stressful coming home. And, and like I said, even before the job fair, coming home from work after a long day and having to spend your whole night writing really well articulated cover letters in the hopes that, you know, a school administrator overseas is going to give you a shot. That was a lot of work. I think for me, I just wanted it so bad. Um, like I said, I had dreamed about going abroad for so long that that was what kept me going. I just wanted so badly to make this happen. And I recognized, too, that I might not have another opportunity in my life or there might not be as, as good an opportunity, at least in my life, for that to happen. You know, I was at the stage where my my husband, um, who had had a business for several years, was selling that business. So he was able to accompany me and he was also at a point in his career where he was working from home. So it was a time where he was going to be able to accompany me. And I, I knew that that wasn't always going to be the case. We were at the stage yet where, of course, we don't have kids or anything like that. I just felt like, you know what, I'm young, I've got the energy to do this. This is really probably the ideal time for me to pursue this opportunity. And so I just I threw myself into it, just decided that I'm going to give it my best shot. And whatever happens, happens. And I, I guess, you know, at the back of my mind, it was comforting to know that if it didn't work out, I still had an amazing job. And I had to remind myself of that, too. I was really, really fortunate to ultimately, you know, get a job at the school that I really wanted to to get a job at. And so, you know, when I was made that offer, it was something that I absolutely couldn't turn down. What did it mean for you personally when you had got that offer, been through the 11 interviews and realized, hey, I pulled off the step of at least getting the job? It was a big moment for me because I remember going through the process and thinking like, man, this is, this is really hard. And if I pull this off, then, you know, I'll be pretty happy that I've accomplished this. And so it was, it was a huge accomplishment for, I, I felt for me personally, it was a huge accomplishment just to, again, knowing my personality and knowing that I'm somebody who really kind of shies away from interviews and, and, and that sort of thing. So I was, I, I, you know, I felt, I felt good about having gone through it once it was said and done. And so for people that, that need to go through that process and that think, oh, this is hard or, oh, I'm not good at interviews, it sounds like you took the approach of just jump in and after a few are happening, you become more comfortable and, and you go from mm -hmm. there. Is that kind yeah. of the approach you took to it? I think I, I remember reading a quote sort of as, as cliche as this may be, but it was something along the lines of like, decide that you want it more than then you're scared of it. And that was that was the case for me. I was definitely scared of it, but my desire to teach abroad was greater than than the fear I had for going through the process. I I just decided, you know what? I'm I'm going to go for it. And I, and I think I figured, you know, what's the worst that happens? The worst that happens is I don't get a job. 
at a school that I'm interested in going to. Um, and you know, and that would, that would be unfortunate because I've put all this time and energy into it. You know, I, I, I don't think I'd ever regret having at least tried because again, it was something that I wanted so bad that I just felt like I lead, I needed to at least try to make it happen. I think that's an amazing way to look at it. Decide that you want it more than you're scared of it. And I think the other thing that I use in my life is regret to me is far worse than the feeling of rejection. So just go for it because if you regret it, it's going to burn even more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, you say you had something to fall back on, but you also had told people at this point at Ridley that you were mm-hmm. potentially going to do this. So you did yeah. risk them thinking differently yeah. of you. Sure. Yeah. And that, that played on my mind. I didn't tell a lot of people. I told my administrators because I had to, uh, because I had to get references from them. And of course I needed, you know, I wanted approval from my headmaster. So certainly that played on my mind. I thought, gosh, if I, if I can't land a job, is that going to make them feel differently about me? But, but again, I also, you know, I'd been at Ridley for five years at this point and I had developed, you know, what I think is a, is a really good relationship and rapport with my administrators. So, yes, that was a risk, but I I felt that they would support me either way. And I think they knew, too, that I was looking for something specific and that I wasn't going to just leave Ridley for any opportunity. And I wanted to find something good. So you go for a year to teach at TASIS in Lugano, Switzerland. I was fortunate enough to visit you there, and it's a beautiful place. The campus is amazing. Did you know that you wanted to teach at TASIS in Switzerland? No, I had my sights set on TASIS actually for some time. I first learned about TASIS um, through a classmate uh, at my at my or in my master's program at Endicott. I met three or four uh, classmates actually who taught at TASIS. And interestingly enough, my master's program, as I mentioned, had summer sessions in international locations, and it was actually in Switzerland. It wasn't in Lugano, where Tassis is. It was it was kind of on the other side of Switzerland. But um, there were three or four people in my program who came from Tassis, and I remember talking to them one day about where they worked, as I talked to students about where they worked. But I remember hearing about Tassis and thought, wow, this school sounds incredible. And you know, a quick Google search will bring up images of what in every respect is, is like a dreamlike Renaissance campus. And, you know, I started researching the school and just became immediately, you know, enchanted by it. It's, it's like I said, it's not just because of the, of the fact that it's in such a beautiful location and such a beautiful school, but it sounded in many ways like, like Ridley. It was a day in boarding school. Um, it had the IB program, at least at, at the grade 11 and 12 level. It sounded like it had an incredibly diverse student body, which again is something that I really loved about Ridley. So in many ways, it sounded like a school that, that I was interested in, in being in. And I learned that they had a good reputation. So for all those reasons, I was sort of immediately interested in, in TASIS. I assume that by focusing on the school, do you think that helped it become a reality because all of a sudden it was a known quote unquote target? Uh, you, you talk about building the right relationships and you know, that was obviously very important. Yeah. And I mean, that is the other key part to the story is that um, I had a connection to Tatasis, not only through this, the students that I met in my um, master's program, but as it turns out, Ridley hired a new head of school 
a year before I actually set out on this job search process. And I ended up actually working quite closely because of a position that I had taken on at Ridley, uh, which was a challenging position too. But again, something that I'm really happy I went through because, I mean, for a number of reasons, but something really great too that came out of that is I got to work really closely with this new head in the upper school. And I, I probably wouldn't have gotten to know her so well otherwise, but I built a really good relationship with her. And she actually came not from the American school in Switzerland, but from Tassus in the United Kingdom. So same same governing body. And um, once I once I secured an interview with the American school in Switzerland about you know about a year later, and I, I told my um, head about it at that point, the head of upper school about it at that point. She reached out to the school, and I think she gave me a, a, a good reference. So that certainly helped. During your time living and teaching in Lugano, other than the beauty around and the ability to travel Europe uh, easier than it would be if you were in North America, what are some of the things you most enjoyed both about your career there, uh, about your personal life and growth, and were there any big learning experiences? And then did it differ in any way? Like I assume it was different than teaching at Ridley. I mean, one one big thing I took away from my experience, and I realized this, you know, pretty quickly, is that kids are kids everywhere you go in the world. You know, my grade six, seven, and eight students at TASAS were really not all that different than my students in, you know, I teach grade seven and eight at Ridley. They were not all that different from my grade seven and eight students. And uh, again, the school structure itself was not all that different as I had sort of expected from the outset. You know, it, we had things at TASA's uh, components to the school day that are very similar to, to Ridley. For instance, we had an advisor program in both schools. An advisor program is where students in middle school are assigned an advisor because students in middle school go on, on uh, rotation. So they have several different teachers and they like to have one kind of key person in place for each student that can act as the liaison between uh, that student's other teachers and the parents. And, and that's known as an advisor. So we had an advisory program at both schools. I was involved in our residential life program at TASA as a, as a house parent. And again, I had worked in Ridley's middle school dorm before. So I'd worked in a middle school dorm before. And, and again, that system wasn't all that different than the system I was used to at Ridley. So in terms of the teaching and the kids and the day-to-day schedule, it really wasn't all that unlike what I was used to. I think is a, is a learning in itself. It was so interesting to me that I could be somewhere, you know, on the other side of the world or across the ocean at least. And, you know, my kids, uh, my students are telling the same, you know, some of the same jokes that are popular at home or, <laughs> you know, doing the same silly floss dance as the students at home were. It's, it was, it was kind of wild in that way. The transition in terms of teaching and your career wasn't the biggest challenge. Um, but what were some of the challenges you had to overcome? You know, funny enough, as I said, the transition to this international school wasn't as difficult as, as I anticipated it would be. What I think was more challenging was just, you know, transitioning to life in Switzerland, period. And, and Switzerland isn't at all a difficult, it's not a hard place to adapt to, but it's different, right? You know, going to the grocery store became a big deal. You know, navigating the roads became a big deal. Trying to, to navigate the language, those things became a big deal. Um, you know, I when I first arrived at TASIS, I wanted to naturally get my classroom set up. I didn't even know where to shop to find the things that I needed. So, um, those those pieces were more challenging than the actual, you know, teaching itself and, and being part of the school was. 
I think that's a great point. And I think a lot of people would be thinking, oh, it's going to be very different in terms of teaching and the kids and my colleagues. But the real challenges come from those those things that you wouldn't initially think of going to the grocery store, learning how to drive manual transmission around Europe, navigating different types of roads. Where are the stores to get uh, supplies for school for the classroom? But, you know, I, I think whenever you swerve and whenever you do something like you did in your career and you take a chance, you really need that support system behind you. And I know that you had that and that must have been key to helping you accomplish this dream you had. Yeah, I'm, you know, so fortunate that I have a husband that was willing to take on those challenges with me. And he, I, I think, is a little braver than I am in terms of being willing to to get out there and to try things that seem like they're going to be really hard. Um, for example, I didn't think that we were going to need a car in Switzerland. Um, I didn't think even if we did need a car, I had I had no idea how we were going to go about doing that, getting a car. Uh, that just seemed like an impossible task to me, not only in terms of expenses, but also in terms of like, I don't even know where to begin looking for a car in Switzerland. It's hard enough to do that here. Um, but I mean, here's the other piece is that, that my husband, of course, is from Europe and he has some family in Europe, not in Switzerland, but um, but in Serbia. So, you know, he, he started thinking, hey, we're going to need a car in Switzerland. And he was able to organize that through his family. And so we, we ended up getting a car. We didn't get it in Switzerland. We got it in Serbia. And we drove it all the way to Switzerland. And in hindsight, it was so great that we had that car because not only is the school kind of removed from the city center, so you do have to drive to get to grocery stores and things like that, but transportation, public transportation isn't um, a great option where we were just because buses didn't run regularly. Taking taxis is very, very expensive. So you know, having that car proved to be so, so helpful for us. And it also allowed us to do a ton of traveling on the weekends, which was really great. Yeah, it really is that team mentality. And you were so lucky to have uh, Igor there being originally from Europe and traveling back there often uh, throughout the last few years. And so if you look at now you're back at Ridley teaching... How did being abroad for a year change your view? How did you grow and what did you take away from it? That's a good question. I don't know. That's, I should have perhaps reflected on that a little bit more than I did after after coming back. You know, you just kind of throw yourself right into it when you get home. But I think more than anything, I learned that I can take on challenges and I can take on different situations. Um, I taught courses at TASIS that I hadn't necessarily taught before. And I remember being really nervous about that. I remember being really nervous about taking on a grade eight history because I'd never taught history before. I didn't have a lot of experience doing that. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, how am I going to take on this full year history course while adapting to a new school, while adapting to a new country? But, I, you know, I managed to do that and, and I, I think I did it pretty successfully. And, and so I think it taught me that you know, we can adapt and we can take on challenges and we, we can do things that may seem insurmountable. I remember this isn't related to teaching, but I remember thinking that I would never be able to drive standard. I had tried learning uh, standard driving at home before I even left for Switzerland and had a bad experience with it and decided it. I just decided I'm not going to drive standard ever again. But of course, in Switzerland, most of the cars are standard. and Indeed, the car that we purchased for the year was standard. And I think at first I thought, you know what, I'm just not 
going to drive this car. It's way too frightening. The roads are way too curvy and way too narrow. I just can't do this. But, you know, a couple of weeks in, I got very tired of relying on Igor to drive me everywhere. And I'm a pretty independent person. And I like being able to go out running errands. And so I, I grew frustrated very quickly. And so I learned to drive standard, which in my mind... I just thought that was something in my life I just wasn't going to be able to do, which I know sounds kind of silly now, but I had had such a bad experience with it before. So I think, you know, both professionally and personally, I learned that I really can take on challenges. And if you work at it hard enough, um, you can, you can, as you said, push through it and you can, you can do it. And I'm so grateful. I'm so, so grateful for the experience that I had in Switzerland. It was hands down one of the best years of my life. And I'm grateful that I had, you know, I had the support that I had in Igor to help make that happen. I'm grateful that I had the support that I had from Ridley to help make that happen. And I'm grateful that I was willing to kind of throw caution to the wind and, and dive into it because it was it was an incredible experience. And it taught me that, I, you know, like I said, that I can take on things that, that might seem totally overwhelming or totally daunting. Was there any times during your one year in Lugano or during your career at Ridley or in Teachers College where you failed or you just lacked confidence and you had trouble pushing through, but you just continued to push through? Yes, sure. I, I, there have been so many times where I've questioned myself and I've questioned if I've done a good job. There have been so many times where I've lacked confidence in myself. Um, but I think that that kind of constant questioning and constant worry is what forces me to really throw myself in with everything I have, you know, and again, if I can go back to the example of the interviews, I think part of the reason that I'm so afraid of interviews is because when I was much younger and in university, I had a really bad interview one time where I totally choked. And it was with an employer that I had already worked for for a year and had a really good relationship. And then the following year, they brought me back in for an interview in the summertime. And I completely choked. And I remember being so upset about that. And I think that's part of the reason why I'm so fearful of interviews today. But the reality is I haven't choked at an interview again because that experience taught me that I need to prepare really well for interviews. And so I do. And that's why I prepared so well for the, the job fair. And I think, you know, even when I'm concerned about, you know, I'm concerned, for instance, when I was concerned about being able to take on the history course, because I'm, I'm, you know, kind of constantly questioning myself, I work really hard, like, I want to make sure that I, you know, do a good job of, of teaching history. So I really did my research, I really spent a lot of hours preparing my lesson, making sure that I was, you know, really well informed on this teaching practices and in, in social studies field and that sort of thing. So, you know, yeah, I've had I've, I've experienced failures, and I've experienced self doubt and, and lack of confidence. But I ultimately think that's what what pushes me to do my best. I'm so glad you brought that up about your what you consider a failed interview experience and how that's propelled you to work harder than the people that you're competing against and how you changed and you, you made the change to make yourself feel comfortable when put in those situations. If there's any teachers listening to this or new teachers, uh, people walking across to get their diploma or undergrad degree, what's your advice to them? Whether they're teachers or professionals, you know, you've developed a successful teaching career in a relatively short period of time. So what do you have to say to those people? Mm -hmm. I think it boils down to maybe three things. I'd say take risks, um, push yourself outside of your comfort zone, 
and work hard. And if you do those things, you can't look back and say, Hey, I didn't give it my best. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't try and make that leap from my, my place of comfort to something that was a little bit uncomfortable. Any risk that I've taken or, or any opportunity that I've taken in my schooling and career have put me in places where I feel uncomfortable and that sucks. <laughs> it's not, it's not easy <laughs> to be in a place where you're uncomfortable, but the results of that are worth it. And it's, you know, it's, it's because of, it's because I've put myself in uncomfortable places that I, that I've, you know, been able to shape a career that I really love and that I really find satisfaction and that I really get purpose out of. I'm, I'm grateful for those, for those moments of discomfort. Yeah. It's really interesting how on the other side of being uncomfortable is really a, a, a new place of growth. If you think Yeah, about absolutely. It. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that, that's awesome way to end. Thank you so much for being my first guest. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm truly grateful to have a sister like you who supports me and this being my first podcast. Thanks for thanks for taking the leap with me and for doing this. I really appreciate it. And for anyone listening, thanks for taking the time. If you think this can be of use to anyone you know, please share it with them. And I look forward to creating more episodes and learning how people rebound from challenges, from what can be perceived as a failure and and how you know life in a career just isn't a straight line and if you're okay swerving it's going to be okay as as someone recently i think it was jay shetty said in his podcast and many people have said change is the only constant so you have to be comfortable with change and that's something i continue to work on myself thanks and have an amazing day